series, Encounters with Jesus. Uh, If you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please do so. We will be in Mark 5, Mark 5, starting at verse 1, and we'll read 20 verses here. And it reads, So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down to the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of the region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he had told them. A brief prayer. God, thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit that illuminates the scripture to us to touch our hearts, Lord, and we're just so thankful that we uh, are able to freely read your word and thank you that uh, you guide us through it. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. Prepare our hearts to receive your word. Thank you for the history that is recorded, the true history of your word. And, Lord, as we walk through this scripture, as it may be a challenge because we do talk about demon possession, Lord, we know that you are in full control. So, Lord, use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. It's interesting as we've been going through our encounters with Jesus, a lot of times um, I, I read the scripture and then I do some kind of introduction and really this story has no need for an introduction. It's, whoa, demon possession. And, and uh, I don't know where any of you are when it comes to reading through the scripture, but perhaps if you're like me, when you come to a story like this, it's just, whoa, that's the only thing that I have to say. But thankfully, Jesus is in control. 
And I just want to take a brief moment just to walk through what we have been doing through this series. We're actually on week nine, if you can believe it, of our encounters with Jesus. Week nine. Um, it seems like we just started last month, but it's been nine. This is the ninth week. And what I've noticed is that with our encounters with Jesus, they're all unique personally. They're all unique through the ones that we've walked through. Essentially, we're just walking through the Gospels. But yet, as unique as each story is, Jesus is always on mission. And he's always pointing to the Father and to his purpose of being there. So let's just take a brief moment to reflect on the, on the last eight or so that we've considered here this morning. First, we started off with the blind man. I was once blind, but now I could see. The woman at the well, how Jesus totally and miraculously healed the woman by having a conversation, and then she went to the rest of Samaria to share the good news. Then we talked about the rich young ruler who felt that his works and his deeds were good enough, but he knew he was missing something, so he asked Jesus, what is it that I need to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, sell your possessions. And perhaps one of the saddest stories of all time, he walked away. And then we read about Jairus' daughter and the woman with the bleeding issue and how Jesus was able to heal the person with high prestige and low prestige. Then we read about the encounter with Zacchaeus and how he was a tax collector and the worst of the worst, and Jesus came for him too. Then the encounter with Nicodemus, perhaps the highest ranking Sanhedrin official there was in all of the land at that time came to Jesus that night. What must I do and Jesus says, you must be born again. Then we talked about the centurion slave and how out of all of, so far out of all of the encounters, perhaps he is the one who showed the most faith at the beginning before Christ did anything. Just say the word. Last week we talked about the Pharisees. And I don't know about you, but I was challenged by the way that I tend to be a Pharisee sometime. I can be legalistic, legalistic and primarily to myself. Now this morning, we're talking about a demon-possessed man. And yet, hopefully, what we will see is that our encounters with Jesus, Jesus is able to handle and deal with everything exactly where we're at in whatever situation. So this, this morning, I just want to consider the encounters in this story. So if you're a note-taker, you could just consider the few people that we are going to look at who had an encounter with Jesus. First, we're going to look at the demon-possessed man and his encounter with Jesus. That is the obvious one. Then we'll look at the demons and the encounter they have with Jesus. And then we'll consider the encounter with the crowd. And then we'll consider, consider the man who is no longer possessed. So we're going to consider the demon-possessed man, the demons, the crowd, and the man who is no longer possessed. And what's interesting here is as we consider this, it's a wild story because in our Western context, primarily since where we live, demon possession is something that we consider, we know, we believe it, but we don't quite get it. And we obviously live now um, post uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But yet there's something when you read this, at least I did, that I was constantly praying that I didn't treat it like a scary movie. Not that I watch scary movies. I'm a big sissy lala, and if I watch a scary movie, I won't be able to sleep for a week and uh, sleep with the lights on. But it's almost as if it's almost entertaining, perhaps, or so scary. But hopefully we will 
do take this as a healthy view. I'm not suggesting that uh, you go home and Google demon possession. Don't do that. I would, I would recommend that if you want some books to read on it about a biblical perspective, I can recommend them to you. But really, as we consider this, let's just consider what we actually read and consider the demon-possessed man. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote. I have a quote here from C.S. Lewis. He said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And hell a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Essentially saying that C.S. Lewis is suggesting, which I would agree, we either want nothing to do with it and it's the furthest thing to the back of our mind, or we are a little obsessive and we look into it too much. But let's just consider what, what we've read here as it relates to an encounter with Jesus. So starting at verse 1 of Mark 5, so they, they being the uh, Jesus with his apostles, they arrived to the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. And the Gerasenes, that this is a uh, Gentile place. They're no, they're no longer in the Jewish place. They're in the Gentile place. So, and you notice, I just want to point out right away from verse 2, it says, When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. Just want to pause real quick. There's some speculation, and I would agree, that the disciples did not get out of the boat. I think for a few reasons. One, well, if you see a, a demon-possessed man running after you, you'd be like, no thanks, I'm good. You get them, Jesus, you get them. But the other one is they are in Gentile territory. And this is the first time that they're really going to spend some significant time in Gentile territory. And right away, when Mark starts to describe this evil man possessed, depending on your translation, it may say an unclean spirit. The interesting thing is, is they are entering in everything that is unclean. They are entering into a place that is by Gentiles. If you recall, Jewish people were not allowed to even touch Gentiles. They weren't allowed to go into their home. Secondly, they weren't allowed to hang out with dead bodies or tombs or anything. Uh, the, the Jewish tradition said that if you touched a dead body, even to prepare him or her for burial, you had to take seven days to be purified through a mitzvah. You had to walk through a pool and do it for seven days. Or anything that is related to Death. So the bed that carried out the dead man, if you were the if you touched it, you couldn't enter. If you touched a tombstone, you couldn't do it. And then obviously there's pigs. They couldn't even do pigs. Right now in Israel, you're not allowed to have any pigs, except there's one place that through some legal figurings they built a platform. And I think it's about a mile long, a platform about two inches off the ground, and they raise pigs in Israel. Because technically the pigs are not on Israeli land. Very clever. It's true. But yet, here they are. They, the, the disciples are here, and they're questioning, no doubt, what are we doing with these Gentiles? If you see this theme running again and again, the Jewish people for a long time struggle, even through Acts, and we did that series a year and a half ago or whenever we did it, they really struggle with the unity that Christ brings to all people. So they don't get out of the boat, it appears. And yet, here's this man that comes. So let's consider this encounter with, with this demon-possessed man. 
Verse 2, so when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit or unclean spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. That means at some point he was able to be restrained. And what would have happened traditionally at this time if anyone was demon-possessed or if they had some kind of mental illness, they are not the same, they are different, or any disease. Next week we are going to talk about the 10 men that had leprosy. They were cast out as far as possible from society because, ooh, they're gross and we don't want nothing to do with them. So this man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. And verse 4, it says, Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Now I just want to take a minute to consider this man. I don't know if there is a man in the Bible that had it worse than this man. Maybe Job, but I don't know. I'm not going to fight you over it. But if you just consider it, because at least for me, I just, as I was reading through this, I was just considering, yeah, yeah, that, that's awful. What did Jesus do? It's an encounter with Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. But I just want to slow us down just a moment. Look at this encounter this man had. He was an unclean man. Let's, let's not even consider the demon possession here for a moment. This man, we don't know for how long, but for a while at least, had been living in burial caves. He's been living at a cemetery. Like, let that set for a while. He is so disturbed, he's living in a cemetery. And this is uh, it's not to be spooky, but just think about how alone this person would be. So much so that people didn't want anything to do with him that they tried to shackle him and leave him there. This man was left alone. And I can't tell you why or how he got possessed. Commentaries, commentators speculate various things. I don't want to do that here. I do enough speculation of my own. But for whatever reason, this man is alone. What I appreciate, at least going through these encounters with Jesus, is how Jesus takes time for everyone, even the most unclean, detestable person. Last week we talked about the Pharisees and how they had rules, and, and, and I even read about the wages and how unfair that was, and just considering that. Jesus is very hard with the religious, but he's very compassionate with the outcasts. So I just wanted, want us to just to take a moment to consider this man was tormented so bad that he was howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. I'm not trying to get depressed here. I just want you to feel the weight of the story. Again, for me, I just consider, just give me the good stuff. Just tell me that Jesus wins at the end. Yes, amen and hallelujah. But yet, we live in a world that is tormented and who needs Christ. So just, I want that to set. So the first encounter is this man runs up to Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 6. It says, When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him and ran to meet him and bowed low before him. Let's stop there. Coming down and bowing down before someone is a sign of submission. 
It is now. It was back then. One commentator said that Jesus, for this man that bowed at Jesus' feet without saying a word, the demonic presented Jesus with another contradiction. Falling at someone's feet was an act of submission, supplication, or even worship. Yet as soon as Jesus ordered the demonic power to leave, a man opposed him with these words, what do you want with me? So just imagine the scene. They get out of the boat. Jesus starts to walk. This man runs from a distance. Now I imagine this man running down a hill, screaming. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime someone yells and screams and running to me, I don't ask questions, I just run. Like, I know I grew up in Long Beach, like by Compton, so if anyone ran and yelled and screamed, I didn't ask questions, where are we running and what's going on? I just ran. More times than I like them. I'm a sissy, just, you already know that by now. But I really want you to imagine the scene, and, and again, the disciples are like, uh, no thanks, get him, Jesus, like, go get him. So this man is running and screaming at him. I'm not saying that all homeless people are demon-possessed, but I get uncomfortable when a man comes up to my window and starts screaming and yelling at me. I would imagine you do too. So from away, what is so striking about this, and I'm making such a big deal about this, since it says in verse 6, some distance away, at any moment Jesus could have walked away and said, no thanks, I don't have time for you. But yet this man throws himself or he bows down. And with a shriek, verse 7, a shriek, he screams, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torment me. A couple of reasons why this shrieking, this demon-possessed man says this. Notice that he calls him Jesus, son of the most high God. Two reasons for this, I believe. The first reason is, as James reminds us, even the demons know and believe in Jesus. He recognizes, the demons recognize who Jesus is immediately. Immediately. The second one is there was a superstition at this time that if you called someone by their full name and and used some power greater, then they had to obey you. Last week, I made fun of my brother, and I'm trying not to this week, but I might. He is a pastor, and I called him by his first name. Anyone here, their mom or dad, ever call you by your full name and say, so help me God? No, just me, and then a shoe came at you or something? It, 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 the superstition at the time, I think, I spent probably way too much time seeing the correlation, but there is some kind of correlation with using someone's full name, pointing, to get them in control. I mean, you do it to your kids, right? And I won't pick on any of my kids, so I'll just say my name, and don't make fun of my middle name, but that's okay. Dallas Lee Jackson. I froze. Okay. You know when you're bad, and they call your name, and call your name, and then you don't pay attention, and all of a sudden, it's all... all th- and maybe some of you have six names in your name, and they say it all. Well, in my house, sometimes I got called my brother's name, the dog's name, and the neighbor's name. But, but anyways, but still, I got called, and it froze me. There is a superstition at this time, and, and like I said, I think it relates to this, why we use it. The superstition is if you use someone's full name and, buy, and call on some god, you had total control over them. So there's a play here, it appears, with this, this demon-possessed man. First, he recognizes, that's obvious, Jesus, son of the most high God. This is actually the first time Jesus is called the son of the most high God. 
And in the name of God, so here's that higher power, yet Jesus is God, I beg you, do not torment me. So do not torment me. He recognizes, the demons recognize who Jesus is. Remember, they're in a Gentile area. They're in a Decapolis. They're in a tin city. And the NLT, which I read, calls it the tin city. This is all Roman-occupied. And if you remember, the Romans were poly. They had uh, multiple, multiple beliefs. But yet they recognize, this demon recognized who he is. And then he says, for Jesus, excuse me, in the name of God, I beg you, do not torture me. Immediately they're showing that they have no authority or power over God. Verse 8, for Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Come out of the man. And what's interesting is they recognize who Christ is. They recognize his power. But yet there's this, but with Jesus there's this strength that he has. And he immediately, verse 9, then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And that word demand actually means the same thing that the uh, evil spirits were trying to do to him by calling him Jesus, Son of Most God, in the name of God. He is saying, he demanded because of who he is, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion because there are many of us inside this man. Stop there. Legion was a military term used by the Romans and it usually consisted of 6,000 men. I don't know if there were 6,000 demons in this man. But saying, I am legion, 6,000 evil spirits potentially are in this man. Now let's contrast this real quick. In a couple of weeks it'll be Christmas. Well, not a couple of weeks, a few weeks away. I need to slow down. Do your Christmas shopping early. But when the angels appear to the shepherds, It says a heavenly host. A host is also a Roman language, which means tens of thousands. So you see this contrast? If you remember during the fall when when Satan was kicked out of heaven, a third of the angels became the demons and they fell. That means two-thirds. So there's this contrast. We do live in a dark world, but yet... There is power in Jesus' name. And this legion is saying, we are many. And I don't want to, I want to take a more aerial view than diving down. But the suggestion is, if there was many, that's the reason why this man had been demon-possessed for many years. Because the more and more demons came into him. But they have to answer Jesus. And they say, We are legion. Then verse 10, it says, Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. Now this story, I chose to read Mark because he gives a a fuller account of it. But I just want to take just a quick moment just to jump over to Matthew 8. And then in a moment, Luke 8. They tell the same story. But let's pick up at Matthew 8, verse 29. Matthew 8, verse 29, it says, They began, these demons, screaming at him, Why are you interfering with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? What is the appointed time? Let's look at Luke 
8.31, the demons, excuse me, Luke 8.31, it says, the demons kept begging Jesus not to send them in to the bottomless pit. And this is the same account. So what's interesting is in both of them, the demons are actually surprised to see Jesus. They do know who Jesus is. They recognize him immediately. But in their mind, they're thinking, is this the end? Is this when Satan is defeated? Because we know in Revelation that they will, Satan will, and, and the evil demons will be cast into the abyss or into hell, depending on your translation. So it, as in Matthew 8, it says, have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? See, this also shows that demons are not as powerful as the world makes them out to be. It's They have to play within the rules and the confines of God. Yet Jesus hadn't died and rose again. His second coming hasn't uh, come yet. So they're saying, are you here to take... A, what's going on? They, they are totally in fear. So as we consider this, just real quick, the demons encounter with Christ is total fear. Their encounter with Christ is total fear. They think, is this the time? Is this the end? Because we know from John that the devil is here to steal and to kill and to destroy. And yet that's why they ask him, don't let us enter them. Let's pick up in verse 11. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. Let us enter them. We're not, we're not ready to be done destroying this host. Let us enter the pigs. It's quite interesting in our Western eyes, as I was preparing through this message, I read it again and again, probably more than I appreciated, that people were so upset, they even said, these poor little piggies. It's not fair. What about the bacon? Like, they were so... Sad. I, I, quite literally, they were so upset. They were more upset. People t- were talking about this and writing this. In the last hundred years, they were more upset with the fact that Jesus would send them into pigs than for the man. So as you consider this, they said, let us enter them. Send us into these pigs. Verse 12, the spirits beg him, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. Gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs, 2,000 pigs plunged down to the steep steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Quickly, as we just think about this, we were not reading Mark in chronological order. Obviously, we're jumping around in the different gospels. But if we would have been working through our way through Mark, in Mark 4... Just before, this is, that's the story when the disciples are on that same boat that they wouldn't get out of. When the storm came, and do you remember the story when Jesus is sleeping in the back? It says that his head was on a pillow as he was resting. And then they wake up, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care about us? And then Jesus says, why do you have little faith? He tells the storm, shh, go night night, and it calms down. But, but listen to Mark 4, verse 41. There's a contrast. It says, the disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. The disciples are still trying to work out who Jesus actually is. What is his purpose? 
And if you want to dig a little deeper, Mark has these clues that the other Gospels don't have. Mark has these clues that point to what Christ's mission is by his name. So they don't recognize who he is, yet the demons do. And the demons have to listen, and they, when Jesus says, what is your name, they have to tell him. He sends them into the pig. They have to go in the pigs. The pigs jump off. That just proves that the demons' whole focus is to destroy. But what I want to do is I just want to spend some time to consider the crowd here. Actually, what touched me the most this week as I was thinking about this was just thinking about how the crowd responded to Jesus how they had an encounter that wasn't their own, but yet by proximity had their own. Look at verse 14. It says, The the herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw that the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, he was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. They saw him sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. They saw this man that had been tormented, I'm assuming for many years, by this evil spirit. And the first thing that they do is they see a man that had been insane, demon-possessed, and they were afraid. Why were they afraid? What was the concern? Was it the power of Jesus, perhaps? But what they could not wrap their mind around, what they looked beyond was this man that was perfectly restored. They looked at this man who was healed, and they see that it cost them something. They saw that it cost them their pigs. At this time, again, this is in the Gentile region, and one of the ways that they made money in this region was the pigs and their cattle. And what they saw was a loss of finances. Verse 16, it says, Then those who had seen what the had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Go away and leave them alone. Jesus, you're making a difference here that we don't appreciate. What we discover here is that there are costs associated with healing. It costs something. First, it costs Jesus everything. It cost him his life. I would imagine... The conversation with these herdmen running into the town is they're saying, what else is Jesus going to do? What other changes are we going to experience here? Jesus, and perhaps this is the biggest question, Jesus, you can just save us for heaven, but leave us alone until then. Thinking about the cost of not just the healing, but the relationship with Christ. It costs you something to follow Christ. And many times what it costs you is the investment into other people. All these herdsmen and the surrounding area, all they could see was they lost money in these pigs. Now, I try to quantify this about I don't own pigs. 
I don't know anyone in here who owns pigs, but just, just for the farmers out there, your entire crop burned to the ground, but one man was saved. You lost your job in the fire, but one man was saved. This beautiful church building that we have burns to the ground. Lord willing, that doesn't happen. One man was saved. I was reading account after account after account within the last 50 years of some radical ways people have come to know Christ. One, in L.A., in the early 90s, there was a pastor outside of South Central L.A. He noticed the homeless problem. What he began to do is invite the homeless to stay the night in the church. Who do you think had the problem? It wasn't the members of the church, as long as they cleaned up for Sunday. It was the businesses across the street that filed a complaint saying, we hope and we know, we hope this won't be a problem and we know that it will be a problem. They filed a petition with the city. The city said you couldn't do it. He filed, the pastor filed for a permit. He added on. And eventually, the actual church building turned into a refuge for the homeless people. He writes, eight years later, this is now 1999, eight years later, he said, I have a church that's 95% of the homeless population. I've lost my church, but I gained one. It's just hard to see. You have to consider counting the cost, he would go on. But the investment in other people is worth everything. Now, I'm not suggesting that you sell everything or be willing to give up everything in the sense of just throw it away. It's just considering your personal relationship with other people. Because if you consider it, what does it cost? For someone to come to know Christ. It costs Christ everything. Discipleship costs time and caring. But yet, this encounter the crowd had with Jesus ended with, Jesus, go away. And the crowd begged, began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Now picture this. This man here was sitting there, fully clothed for the first time in years, totally restored. You could hear him talk. He was totally redeemed. And yet, please leave. But I do consider sometimes, even in our own walk, sometimes it's hard to invest in other people because we're all messy. What will it cost? Just a couple of weeks ago, I'll tell you a quick story of my, of my own. We had church on Sunday. It was great. Went home, came back for the Young Adult Life Group. Young Adult Life Group at 6 o'clock tonight. You should come. Okay, there's my plug. And it was a great time, and we stayed a little bit later. And I was really tired. Shocker. And when I got home, I was so sad to see this man waiting for me. Because all I wanted to do was go home take a shower and go to bed. Now this man has been a man that I've helped a few times. He is homeless living in his car in our neighborhood. And the moment I saw him, I said, I'm tired. Can I help you later? You know what he did? 
He didn't want anything from me. He just wanted to deliver treats to say thanks for helping him in the past. You know how big I felt? That big. But it costs something. And I'm sure you've all been there before. If I help this person out, I'm good with helping them out now. I'm not so sure if I have to help them later. And I'm not talking about enabling. I'm not talking about all of that at all. I'm just considering it's so easy to find that I want to be the man that's healed from the demons, from the evil, from my sin. I don't want to be demon-possessed, but I want to be the one healed. I want to be the one that Jesus comes to. But more often than not, I tend to be the people who say, Jesus, can you leave for now? Because what else are you going to change? Now quickly, let's look at the demon-possessed man, and I won't call him demon-possessed anymore. I'll just call him the man. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, notice that Jesus doesn't force himself to be loved or accepted. The crowd begged and pleaded with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, he goes into the boat. Okay, I'll leave. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. You notice there's two times that people beg, or there's two times this man begged Jesus. The first was when he was demon-possessed. The demons begged, do not do away with us. Now the man is begging on his own, let me come with you. Jesus, please let me go. I would imagine if he could elaborate more, he says, Jesus, you've done so much for me. Let me come with you. These guys are really going to hate me even more because they lost their pigs. Let me come with you. You are my everything and I want to follow you. But Jesus said in verse 19, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great news Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he had told them. Just quickly, let's just consider this encounter. Jesus heals this man of the demons. He asked him to go do something, and he obeys. Just you remember the stories, the ones that we covered earlier. The blind man, remember Jesus? and put mud in his eyes and says, now go wash, and he obeys. The woman at the well says, Do you go get your husband. She says, I'm not married. He says, you've spoken truthfully. You've been married multiple times, and the man you're living with is not your husband. So she runs the town, go and tell. The rich young ruler, go and sell your possessions. He doesn't. Jairus' daughter and the, the woman who's bleeding, heals his daughter, go and tell everyone. The woman who touches the hem of his garment she says, Jesus says, who touched me? And she boldly comes out and listens and obeys. Zacchaeus, come down from that tree, for I'm coming to your house today. Nicodemus later on comes and buries Jesus with the spices. The centurion, perhaps what I mentioned, the greatest faith, just say the word and I'll obey. And here... I believe this man could have continued to beg Jesus, no, please let me go with you. I don't want to be here. These are rotten, awful, evil people. Wait a minute. You're rotten, awful people. 
Jesus says, no, go to your home and family and tell them everything that the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been to you. It's so easy for us as Christians, one, to measure the cost of being involved in someone else's life, and two, when things get tough, want to run away with Jesus. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't protect our families, but a lot of times I think we have this, especially now, we just want to circle the wagons and protect ourselves because the evil's out there. And a lot of times we forget that the sin that we have is just as evil. So what does he do? So the man starts off to visit the 10 towns of the region and began to proclaim the great news, the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he had told them. He turned into a missionary for God. God saved him, said, go and tell And he went and told. And just quickly, as we consider the Colossian, or considering Colossians, what happens to the demons? I just want to, we should not fear demons. Colossians 2 13 through 15 says, It's a reminder to us you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, Satan and the demons. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So just as we consider in closing And then I'm going to read an encounter from someone who moved to Tennessee. See, the Jews at this time believed that the source of all of their problems were the Romans. And they even called them unclean pigs. And really what the Jewish people wanted Jesus to do was to come in and destroy the Romans. Go in the region and destroy everything and wipe them out. And let the Jewish people reign. A lot of times as Christians, I think we want that to happen. Come on, Jesus, send another flood. Not like Noah flood, but a big flood because you promised you wouldn't. Just wipe them out. Get them, God. But what does Jesus do? And this is really, as I was, just this came like the last few days as, as I was closing up studying. As much as the Jewish people wanted Jesus to destroy the Romans, what Jesus actually does is he just destroys the evil without destroying the person. He heals the Gentile, the man. Jesus reveals the evil, deals with the evil. It's not simply the evil person. Everyone try to shackle this guy, tie him up, just do away with the man. But Jesus comes to do away with the sin. And there's sin in all of us. Aren't you thankful that Jesus doesn't deal with us the way that we tend to deal with ourselves and others? Just throw our hands up and want nothing to do with it? Not that there isn't a penalty for sin. There is death. There are places in society where we just throw up our hands and say, the evil is gross and it's not worth it and it's so unclean and nasty and I want nothing to do with it. Yet, what does Jesus do? He heals. See, and this is what connected the pieces for me. When he's all done, when this demon-possessed man is all done, it says halfway in verse 15, he was sitting there fully clothed, perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. He was clothed, 
He was in his right mind, and he was sitting there restored. I just imagine a kid sitting there with his legs saying, Hey, guys, remember me? What I did not put together right away until the end was that this story actually reveals the gospel in such a unique way. See, Jesus exchanges position with this men at the end. Jesus is stripped naked. He cries out on the cross on the hill. He's bleeding, although he doesn't cut himself. And he's driven to his tomb. What was this man doing? It was the exact opposite. This really encapsulates what Jesus does for all of us. Jesus is stripped naked. He cries out on the cross. He is bleeding. He is driven into his tomb. And that is how Jesus deals with evil and sin and Satan. If he would have destroyed the person, he would have only dealt with sin in a small way on an individual level. But he took the shame and of the sin and of the evil. He destroyed the evil without destroying the person. And Jesus deals with our sin the same way, without wiping us out. He took it all on us, on himself. He took it to the cross. And what did it cost Jesus? It cost him his life to save your life. True healing shows his love and his value for us and that we are so loved by Jesus, not because of our performance, not because of what we've done, not how good we are, simply because he loves us, because he knows us intimately. So much so he knows our deepest, darkest sin, the one that we don't even want to admit, and he put it on the cross. See, that's what forgiveness does. That's what our encounters with Jesus does. It deals with our sin. It deals with the yuckiness in us without destroying us. And I would suggest there is no more broken a man than this man, yet when no one else got in the boat, off the boat, and no one came in from the city, Jesus stepped on the shore to save that one man. And just as I consider that, Everything this man represented was so evil and gross, yet Jesus took his place on the cross. So usually there's an awkward transition when I ask someone to come up here and everyone claps. You don't have to clap, but I just want to read you this encounter. This is from Robbie Irigori, and I think about a month ago, she moved to Tennessee, and I made fun of her for it because <laughs> I'm kind. Let me just read you her encounter. She said, hi, Renew. Did you think you could get rid of me so easily? <laughs> and then she said, okay, life group guys, Keith and Darren, ha, whatever that means. <laughs> I'll get to the point. A, a bit of history first. When I first moved to Ripon six and a half years ago, I threw a temper tantrum in my car at our beloved father. I was upset that he had taken me from all that I had prayed for, church, Bible study, strong Christian friends, and mentors, for what? To be alone? Once I took a breath, he said, Robbie, I am all you need. Well, I felt like a jerk. It was true. He is all I need. Fast forward. I had a particular encounter with Jesus before leaving California that I wanted to share but didn't have time or the emotional fortitude. 
My original encounter I wanted to share changed the further I drove from California. At first, it seemed to have more to do with Burt's Bees chapsticks than Jesus. Yes, I said chapstick. I was packing to leave California, and it was getting down to the end. I ran out of wrapping paper with the last piece of glass. I ran out of bubble wrap with the last piece of electronics. I ran out of tape with the last box. Now to the chapstick. I have four chapsticks. One for the purse, one for the car, one for the nightstand, one for the bathroom. I ran out of the one that belonged on the nightstand the last night. The chapstick in my purse somewhere on our way to Tennessee is gone. The third in my car as we piled into the driveway. Jesus seemed to be saying, start anew. The point was cemented after a few nights in our new home, I ran out of my last chapstick and that was in the bathroom. I had to start anew. I have found a church that is comfortable like Renew. The women are kind and have gone out of their way to make me feel comfortable. I don't know if this will be my church home, but I do know that Jesus has met me where I am without fail. I believe God has moved me out of the way for someone else. I think I see his hand on someone's life, but only time will tell. God bless and much love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Robbie Irigori. Thanks, Robbie, for sharing that. Chapstick. Starting anew. I had someone that was going to share. They're going to share later on. I mixed up weekends. And um, what I appreciated is starting anew. And as we considered this demon-possessed man, he started anew. And what did Jesus ask him to do? Go and tell the world. And that, if anyone in here has accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, go and tell the world. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for who you are. Thank you for not treating us the way that we deserve. Thank you for not treating us the way that we tend to treat ourselves sometimes and other people. Lord, thank you for having the power and authority over Satan and the demons. Thank you, Lord, that you came to save us, Lord. Thank you for not just saving us when we came to know you as Lord and Savior, but every day you are working in our lives to help us be more like you. Will you help us continue to um, be bold in our faith? Will you help us to have a fresh lens on people that we feel uncomfortable with? Lord, however you call us to minister to whomever you call us to minister, let us do it with gladness. Lord, I see that it could be so easy for us to be like the townspeople who ask you to leave, not because we don't want you as a savior, but we just don't want to be like you. Lord, as we were reminded by the testimony, the encounter of Robbie, sometimes it's just through a chapstick that you remind us that you're present or to start anew. So Lord, as we sometimes try to count the cost of what it means to follow you, will you help us be reminded that it cost you your life? Lord, that we thank you for your spirit that guides us and leaves us, Lord, and we just pray that um, we are like this new man 
where you tell us to go and we go. And we want to be more like you. So as we worship you with a few more songs, we just praise your name and we thank you for your love for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.